This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com slash history and enter offer code history at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So, uh, late this winter, I got to go to the Cayman Islands National Museum in Georgetown, Grand Cayman, where I'd actually been once before. Because you're a fancy vacationer. I'm a fancy, well, I'm a fancy vacationer, but this time we were trying to vacation both fancily and frugally. Yeah. uh, Which is why we spent our time in Grand Cayman walking around and going to the National Museum. Which is uh, not a very expensive place to go if you are in Grand Cayman. So I had been there once before, but this time I took Patrick with me. Uh, the museum is in the oldest public building in the Cayman Islands. It's one of the very few 19th century structures still standing on the islands because they are struck by hurricanes on a regular basis. Um, while we were there... Patrick mashed a button on one of the displays and it brought up, <laughs> it brought up this video on something called the Wreck of the Ten Sail. And we started off being like, that's a weird name for a ship, which is why we watched it. And then as we watched this video, we realized that the Ten Sail was not the name of the ship. It was Ten Sail of Ships. So, Ten Ships. A shipwreck of Ten Ships at once. It was the biggest shipping disaster in Cayman Islands history. And so naturally, Patrick said, you should do a podcast on this. So we are. Yay! Uh, Thanks to my vacation. So I I love a good vacation discovery. I do too. I have them pretty often when I am on vacation. Uh, and this, I, I, like the last time I had been, um, in the museum, there was nothing like that that really sparked my attention this way, but this one did. Yay! Uh, so just so you have, uh, some background on the Cayman Islands. These are a collection of islands in the Caribbean, south of Cuba and northwest of Haiti, and they were uninhabited by humans when Columbus sighted them in 1503 after he was blown off course on his last voyage to the Americas. There is no archaeological evidence of any indigenous people living on these islands, but there certainly were lots and lots of turtles. So Columbus named them Las Tortugas. Later, they were renamed the Caymanas, probably after the Carib word for Cayman, the alligator-like lizard that lives in Central and South America. And this eventually morphed into being the Cayman Islands. They are made up of Grand Cayman, Little Cayman, and Cayman Brock. The Cayman Islands are now famous for their banking and financial industries and being a place to squirrel your money offshore (laughs) to get it away from the tax man. But until more modern times, the economy was based on more local industries like rope making. And during the golden age of piracy, they were also a popular haven for pirates, including Blackbeard. This is what led Prince Philip to say on a 1994 visit to dedicate a monument to this disaster. Aren't most of you descended from pirates? It cracks me up. <laughs> I love Prince Philip. So, <laughs> so the ocean around the Cayman Islands is just full of shipwrecks. Unlike the larger Caribbean islands like Haiti, Cuba, or Jamaica, the Caymans are really flat and low to the ocean, so even in good weather, they can be hard to see from far away. And they're also surrounded by really treacherous reefs and right in the middle of a track for major hurricanes. 
And yet, in spite of all this danger and kind of a non-ideal topographical situation, during this part of history, ships traveling back and forth between the Caribbean and Europe routinely went around the Caymans rather than taking the much more direct route between Cuba and Hispaniola. That bit of water, which is known as the Windward Passage, is extremely rough and very windy. I have been through the Windward Passage four times. It has made me seasick every time. And that was in like a great big ship with modern stabilizing technology. So I cannot really imagine how horrible it must have been to go through that little stretch between Cuba and Hispaniola in like a a wooden sailing ship from the 18th century. That sounds terrible. Yeah, probably a little bit of a tummy twister. Yeah. So uh, instead of going through the Winter Passage, they would go the long way around, around the Cayman Islands, which could be treacherous, but okay if you gave it a wide berth. And then once you got on the other side, the Gulf Stream would speed the ship along its way. So it was a farther journey, but easier than going through the Windward Passage. It did not go so well one night in 1794, though. And the story of this particular shipwreck starts with the French Revolutionary Wars, during which France was at war with a whole chunk of Europe, including Great Britain. And along with everything else going on, the warring nations' navies were naturally taking one another's ships as prizes and trying to protect their own shipping interests by providing naval escorts for civilian vessels. In 1793, the British Royal Navy took the French frigate Inconstant as a prize. And after taking it to Port Royal, Jamaica, the Navy gave it a new crew and put it back into service as the convert, since there was already a ship named Inconstant in the Royal Navy. And the convert was really too lightly built to survive heavy heavy combat. So, under Captain John Lawford, it was put into service as a scout, a messenger, and also as an escort for merchant convoys. In January of 1794, the convert was sent to the west end of Jamaica to gather up a convoy and escort it back to England. This convoy was originally scheduled to leave at the end of January, but it was postponed a couple of times. First, by a request of the chief of magistrates and merchants, who thought that a later departure date would be better for the merchant community as a whole. Uh, then it was delayed a little bit longer because the, the winds were very light when they were trying to set sail, and it was not enough to get the heaviest merchant ships out of the bay. And when the convoy finally set sail on February 6th, it had 58 ships, and all but three of them were bound for Europe. And those three uh, were going to various American ports. This sounds like a huge, huge convoy, but uh, this size really wasn't unusual for a convoy at this point in history, especially during wartime. Yeah. Kind of like a stick-together mindset. Yeah. If you wanted to wait for a military escort, you pretty much had to go when that was going to be available to you. Lawford's orders were to set the pace to that of the slowest ship and then to keep the convoy together at all costs. And he did this by ordering all of the merchant ships to stay behind the convert, which would occasionally fire its guns to warn merchants that started to creep ahead of it. And under normal circumstances, a ship of this era leaving Jamaica would pass the Caymans within 24 hours. And theoretically, that should have been possible even with such a large convoy. But one of the merchant vessels was leaky, and the convoy had to lie to twice while it was bailed out. And even though they picked up speed to try to make better time, when the sun went down on the 7th, they had seen no sight of land. This was a very dark, cloudy night. And as midnight approached, the sailing master, who was named Thomas Popplewell, calculated that they should be safely past the Caymans with at least seven leagues between the convoy and the treacherous reefs. 
Popplewell also suggested that they needed to alter their direction a little bit to compensate for very northerly winds so that they would stay on their course, which was sort of aimed at the western tip of Cuba. And based on Popplewell's recommendations, Lawford gave the order. Popplewell relieved him for the night, and he went below. At about 3 a.m., two shots were fired from one of the civilian ships. Popplewell went below. He woke Lawford up. Uh, They went back up. Both of them thought that this was a distress call from one of the ships behind them. But when Lawford got on deck again, he realized that several ships had passed the convert in the night, apparently without anyone aboard the convert realizing. The shot had come from one of the ships that was ahead of them, not a ship behind them. And at the same time, someone on watch called that there were breakers ahead. In Lawton's words, they, quote, appeared in every direction, and I could not tell from the darkness of the night to what extent they might run. So knowing that the breakers meant they were all in imminent danger, the convert tried to take evasive action. This was a really nimble ship. Uh, it, it was a, a light and fast French, French ship. And according to the captain, they really would have been fine. But almost immediately, Lawford realized that they were on an inevitable collision course with one of the merchant ships that was also uh, right next to them. The two ships struck each other and their crews managed to separate them, but only for the convert to then be struck again by the other ship. And about this same time, Popplewell tried to sound the depth of the water, but as he did, the convert ground against the reef. The crew tried to lighten the frigate by taking down the masts, but the damage was already done. The bilge was filling up, and the captain had to give the order to abandon ship. And before we talk about what happened next, it's exciting Middle of the night shipwreck. Let's take a moment. (laughs) Yeah, let's take a moment and talk about a sponsor. Okay. So it was clear even in the middle of the night that, that multiple ships had wrecked and they started evacuating either with their own boats or with canoes that were rowed out from the island. So survivors who were in the water made rafts out of flotsam and jetsam to try to get to shore. But the going was really rough. It was the middle of the night, the sea was extremely choppy, and the wind was blowing right at the reef. So the ships that had avoided this pileup could not risk approaching to assist. And sailors from the convert who managed to make it into the ship's boats were picked up by other vessels. About 20 of the convert's crew decided to wait aboard the disabled ship for rescue rather than risk the canoe passage to land at night in the dark. Yeah, I can kind of imagine them being like, yeah, uh-uh, <laughs> that is not happening. Uh, the men who made it to shore made huts and tents from the wreckage and then used the convert's boats to try to salvage provisions and other equipment. But there was really not a lot they could do in the middle of the night. The sharp coral was destroying their ropes as they were trying to haul things. And the sea was so rough that even really strong swimmers were having trouble managing it. When the sun came up, they saw, in Lawford's words, quote, a most melancholy scene. Seven ships and two brigs on the same reef with the convert, a very heavy sea running and the wind blowing directly on the shore. Those seven ships and two brigs were the William and Elizabeth, the Moorhall, the Ludlow, the Britannia, the Richard, the Nancy, the Eagle, the Sally, and the Fortune. The Ludlow was sadly a fine new vessel on her first voyage, according to an advertisement that had been placed in Kingston, Jamaica, the December before, uh, advertising its place in the convoy. And the Moorhall, so sadly, was full of, quote, flour, ham, 
cheese, and potatoes for sale. Although most of the perishables were lost uh, after the wreck. I feel like we should have a moment of silence for the, for the all the for all the ham and cheese. All the ham and cheese. <laughs> well, and the potatoes. Yeah, it's all lost. There's a lot of casserole that was lost at sea. Mm-hmm. Not to belittle the loss of the other things, but yeah. Even with the benefit of daylight, the conditions on the water weren't much better than they had been during the night before. Rough swells and the constant wind meant that even though visibility was better, the 48 undamaged ships in the convoy still couldn't approach to offer any help. Locals from the island spent the whole day of February 8th in a canoe-based rescue operation. And by the time the sun went down again, most of the survivors from the wrecked ships had been brought to shore. Also on the 8th, Lawford talked a fisherman into delivering a letter to the unwrecked ships, instructing them to go westward to Hogsty Bay on the lee side of the island, which is off of Georgetown. The water would be calm there, and they could all basically just wait at anchor for a new escort. Nine of the ships did this, and the rest of the convoy continued on unescorted. On the 9th, Lawford set off from Gun Bluff on the east end of Grand Cayman, where they were camped, to Georgetown, planning to send word to the Admiralty and make arrangements for the convoy while he was there. This was basically the opposite end of the island. He arrived on the 11th and posted his various letters. To sort of give you an idea of how small Grand Cayman is, he did this on foot. In two days. In two he days. walked the whole island. Yeah. On the 12th, he was met in Georgetown with a petition signed by eight residents of Grand Cayman who were asking for the passengers from the wrecked vessels to be, quote, immediately removed from this island as soon as possible. The huge influx of shipwreck survivors had the residents pretty much panicked. There were only about 900 people living on the island at this point, and shipwreck survivors had increased the island's population by more than half. So uh, at least 400 people now feeling a little crowded, Feeling a little crowded on top of all that. Uh, in the words of the petitioners, it was, quote, morally impossible for the inhabitants to support themselves. Uh, this was because of a huge hurricane that had struck the islands the past October. So it was sort of like we are in dire straits already and you guys have just made our population half again as big. We cannot manage this. In response to this petition, Lawford divvied the survivors up. He sent them to the ships at Hogsty Bay and wrote letters to their captains, repeating this, quote, morally impossible language. He begged the captains to remove their ships immediately. And he also wrote introductory letters to the governor of Havana, requesting aid for any of the ships that should make their way there en route back to England. Having handled all this correspondence and arrangements, Lawford then went back to the camp on Gun Bluff. And there, he and about 20 of his men carried out a salvage operation for the next six weeks. In the end, they were able to get quite a lot from the wreckage, including sails, rope, tools, ammunition and artillery, swords, pikes, and axes. Nearly everything perishable was lost, though, and many of the converts' original French cannons sank to the seafloor. Only five men from the convert were killed in the wreck, along with three people on other ships, one of whom was the master of the Britannia. Several people died of illness in the wake of the disaster, though, but considering that there were 10 ships involved in this shipwreck, the death toll was remarkably small. All nine of the ships that had rendezvoused at Hogsty Bay and their newly increased crew and passengers made it safely back to England. Uh, two of the others that left previously unescorted, though, were a little less fortunate. One was taken by a French privateer and another was captured by the French Navy. 
And then there are consequences. Of course. Uh, <laughs> because this incident had been so huge and had involved a Navy bl- vessel, it led to a court-martial on April 1st of 1794. The court-martial was held aboard the HMS Success, which was anchored off Port Royal, Jamaica. Lawford's defense was that this entire thing would have been completely prevented if the ships in the convoy had stayed behind the convert like they were supposed to from the beginning. He insisted that had the convert been at the front of the convoy, it was uh, nimble enough that it could have evaded the reef and steered the rest of the convoy away from it, even if they had gotten as close to the reef as they did before wrecking. The first lieutenant, B. Bogue, and second lieutenant, William Earnshaw, were questioned as well, asked by the court to give their account of what had taken place. And each was cross-examined by Lawford, who asked about whether they had seen the master of the ship use the sextant to figure out their latitude, whether the signals had been flown to instruct the other ships to stay behind them, whether they'd had to fire shots to warn ships to get back behind them, and additional questions of a similar nature. Yeah. The the third lieutenant, I also kind of want to say lieutenant every time, because, <laughs> because we're talking about English people. Um The third lieutenant was also called and sworn, uh, but he had not been on duty because of an injured arm, so he was excused. Mr. Popplewell was questioned on the matter of the logbook, which had been found to contain no record of the distance traveled the day before the wreck. He was also questioned about his knowledge of the region and the route. Even though it hadn't been in the log, Popplewell was able to tell the court their latitude as of his last reckoning, and he insisted that the difference in their position was because of unexpectedly strong currents that had carried them off course during the night. Then there was a lot of back-and-forth questioning on the matter of the logbook omission. And the master's mate and the midshipmen were called, and Lieutenant Bogue was called for a second time, and they were both cross-examined also uh, by the captain. None of them knew the reason for the omission in the log, but they all had every reason to believe, according to their statements, that the measurements had been correct and that the sextant had been accurate. Then Mr. Davy, master of the ship's success, was called and asked by the court to give the latitude where the wreck had happened. Lawford cross-examined him, asking him how he found the currents leading north from Jamaica to the Caymans during his own voyages. And he said he'd found them to be very strong, and it had put them off their reckoning by nine or ten leagues. I kind of, I like how, how Lawford's kind of like, you, you, you found this to be like extraordinarily strong current, did you not? <laughs> we sure did. In the end, Lawford and his crew were acquitted, and here is... The statement on that, quote, the court having thoroughly examined into the several circumstances attending the same and having maturely and deliberately considered the whole is of the opinion that the misfortune was occasioned by a strong current setting the ships very considerably to the northward and their reckoning and doth therefore adjudge that the said Captain Lawford, commander of his majesty's late ship, the convert, the officers and the company of the said ship be acquitted and they are hereby acquitted accordingly. And this incident didn't really affect Lawford's career. He continued to command ships and he eventually became an admiral. So weather and science have dredged up lots of new information about this 220 year old shipwreck shipwrecks, plural of 10 ships uh, in the last 40 or so years. 
Coral-encrusted cannons started showing up around town on the east end of Grand Cayman in the 1970s, and the locals had lots of stories to tell about cannons in the water where they had played as children. These weapons all bore dates of 1781, as well as French markings. An archaeological survey by the Institute of Nautical Archaeology in 1980 confirmed that there were six more large pieces of artillery still in the sand. The weapons themselves all seemed like they probably came from the convert. Uh, it had kept its French artillery when it had been put into service for Britain. And a study of the reef line the same year also found evidence of where the convert had run aground. And still more in that same year, uh, Hurricane Allen unearthed more wreckage in that same part of the ocean. There are more than 20 shipwrecks in the area, and surveys of all of them pinpointed six that are probably from the wreck of the Ten Sail. Ashore, archaeologists found all manner of pottery shards, glass, and naval hardware suspected to be from the survivors' camp. As you'll recall, they gathered up stuff and built a camp out of the salvaged wreckage. And then they did their salvage work for about six weeks from there. Fieldwork into all of this continued for about a decade. And then correspondence with naval scholars from France confirmed that the cannons that were there on the seafloor would have been aboard the Inconstant before it was pressed into English service. Margaret Leshikar Denton, an archaeologist serving with the Cayman Islands National Museum, conducted a survey of cannons salvaged from shipwreck sites and followed it up with an extensive underwater survey of 30 shipwrecks along a three-mile stretch of seafloor near the east end. She identified one site as the probable convert and a collection of others that are probably some of the merchant ships. And she found some other previously unknown shipwreck sites from the 19th and 20th centuries in the process. So while looking for these... Additional history was unearthed, yeah. as well, often happens. And when we we were saying that you know the the ocean around the Cayman Islands is full of shipwrecks, thirty shipwrecks along a three mile stretch. Yeah, <laughs> That's a lot of shipwrecks. It is. That's one of the reasons why, if you go on vacation to the Cayman Islands, one of the things that that will be advertised is uh like sn- snorkeling and scuba diving in shipwrecks, glass bottom boat rides to look at shipwrecks. There's a lot of shipwrecks are an industry shipwreck tourism. Yeah. uh, In addition to hiding your money from (laughs) from from tax from taxes. Okay, Uh, a couple of legends grew out of this shipwreck and have persisted until today. One is that in the years after the wreck of the tin sail, fashion completely changed on the island as locals retrieved bolts of identical cloth from the wreckage and then used them to make their own clothing. I love that. I thought you might. Because it mentions textiles. Uh, the other legend is that there was a prince or another dignitary aboard one of the ships, and George III declared the islands to be free from taxes and conscription out of gratitude. And this is almost certainly a made-up story. Yeah, it's much more likely that there are, there were so few people in the Cayman Islands for so many years that it wasn't worth taxing. They were not really making any kind of income for a long time. Probably kind of grew from there. Queen Elizabeth II visited the island and unveiled a commemorative park in 1994 for the 200th anniversary of the massive shipwreck. And that is the story. A lot of ships. So many ships. Well, and it's one of those things where it's the um, the wreck of ten sail, but there were so many other ships involved. Yeah, because of the this giant convoy. That when you think about how many people were kind of there at the nexus point all at once while it was going down late in the night. Yeah. Ooh. I got this this book uh, that was 
put out by the Cayman Islands National Archive and Cayman Free Press um, that collects reproductions of all these historical documents about the wreck. And you can hear Captain Lawford's exasperation when he's like writing out his his descriptions of what happened of like, if only these stupid merchant ships had just stayed behind me like they were supposed to instead of me having to babysit them like a bunch of little children, none of this would have happened. Well, I also have a question that's like, how did no one notice? I have that question also. <laughs> and that was not satisfactorily answered in any of the research that I did of like how nobody. I feel like Popplewell maybe should have taken some blame because wasn't he on? He, yeah, he was, he, he was on deck. while that was happening. Yes. What was he doing? I, I, maybe he was napping. <laughs> I but even so, there would have been other people on deck too. That is the weirdest part of this whole story is like how. At, at least nine ships got ahead of them and and wrecked without anyone noticing that anyone was ahead of them. I mean, it was a dark night, but that does seem a little... It seems like a lot. That seems like a lot of ships to pass you in the night without you noticing. Yeah. So anyway, wreck of the sand sail, thanks to my vacation. Yay! Uh, I also have some listener mail. Ooh, I hope you will share it. This is from Sarah, and Sarah says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I'm a big fan of the podcast and have been listening for years, but have never before written in. I love to listen as I walk the 20 minutes to the hospital each morning and back home each evening, as well as on runs with my dog, Watson. I felt compelled to write in after listening to your fabulous podcast on Elizabeth Blackwell. She's one of my favorite influential women of history. And as a female medical student, I greatly admire her for her work for gender equality in the medical profession. Her life story also resonates with me because I'm also a non-traditional medical student. I was an English major and went on to obtain my MPH before beginning medical school this fall at Rush. I'm also an ensign in the Navy and a recipient of of an HPSP scholarship. Luckily for me, Rush Medical College, named after Benjamin Rush, who is featured in a Sawbones podcast, recruits many non-traditional students. At Rush, I am one of the student leaders of the AMWA, the American Women's Medical Association, so I want to take some time to remark upon some of your statements regarding the percentage of female physicians currently in practice. You were correct that about 35 to 36% of physicians are currently women. Notably, this uh, percentage will gradually increase over time as my generation joins the workforce because most medical schools now enroll an equal proportion of men and women. However, I also wanted to draw attention to the representation of women in certain specialties. You commented that you thought the percentage of women physicians was higher because you see female GPs regularly. This may be because the percentage actually is higher in primary care. Women are more represented in non-surgical specialties and primary care, as well as OBGYN. And she has, in parentheses, 53% of women residents are in four specialties, internal medicine, pediatrics, family practice, and OBGYN. However, uh, women remain underrepresented at higher levels of academic medicine and executive positions. And then she cited her source for this information, <laughs> which makes me very much love Sarah. Yes, indeed. Uh, it's from- I just love that she started an English major. That too. I'm like I could not have gone from that to becoming a um, medical student. But- I could not become a medical student because I have problems with vomit. Her source was <laughs> from past to present, the changing demographics of women in medicine from AAO.org. So, back to the letter proper. The subject of women and specialties is a heavily debated topic, as many people argue that these differences are a disparity, whereas others speak to differing gender roles and attributes that drive women to these fields and not others. 
I personally believe that women should be granted every opportunity to to pursue the specialty of their choice without fear of discrimination because of their gender, and that all physicians should be granted the opportunity to have both meaningful home lives and pursue their career aspirations. I hope this email wasn't too long. No, it was not. (laughs) And then just feel free to share if you think others will be interested, but keep up the good work. Oh, and then also pictures of a puppy. Yay! Thank you, Sarah. That's really cool. It is really cool, and uh, I, I, uh, I think I knew the the basics of the fact that there are more women in primary care and more women OBGYNs, which of course are the yeah. two that I see most often. And now thinking on it, usually when I've had to see a specialist for some reason, like when I've had to go to the orthopedist. Or you and I have both had to go to the sports podiatrist. I was just there Friday. Uh, uh, and uh, I had to go to an ophthalmologist once. And surgeons are often. Yeah. All of those doctors have been male. And most of my dentists have been male. But my. Yeah. Generally, uh, I have chosen. I think I've only seen one female dentist. Yeah. I see lots of female hygienists. That's clearly a, a gender. There's a definitely a, a balance of gender difference between for sure uh between hygienists and dentists and also at the orthodontist's office between the orthodontist and the whatever the the technicians the technicians are so yes thank you so much for writing sarah yeah it's interesting i'm sure there have been tons of studies done on how oh yeah um gender separation happens across medical fields. Yeah. If you would like to write to us, you can. We are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We are also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. Mistinhistory.com is the URL of our new-ish still website where we are still tagging up all of our old episodes. It is a manual process. We're plugging away at it. Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can put the word shipwreck at the, in the search bar at our other website, which is howstuffworks.com or you want to read about pirates instead, you can put the word pirates in the search bar. You will find, depending on what you put in there, Taken by the Sea, 11 Real real Life Shipwrecks, or How Pirates Work. You can do all that and a lot more uh, at our parent website, HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Lynda.com. You can learn it at Lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try Lynda.com free for seven days by visiting Lynda.com slash history stuff.